This is Book TV's Afterwards podcast. This week, New York Times op-ed columnist Charles Blow makes his case for black people to amass political power to combat white supremacy in his book, The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto. He's interviewed by author and Woodson Center founder and president Robert Woodson. I was pleasantly surprised when I picked up your book, The Devil You Know, I expected to have much to disagree with, but I find um, a lot of common ground, and I I hope that's not to your disadvantage. (laughs) 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 But I'd like to start, uh, it's it's a fascinating book. Uh, I'd like to ask you about the title. Yes. Tell us something about the title before we get into the content. Well, there was a line in the book proposal that said that, you know, when black people took part in the great migration, they left the devil they knew for the devil they didn't, only to come to realize that the devil is the devil, that racism was everywhere. Uh, and so the devil you know in this context is the racism itself ubiquitous in America. Well, uh, that's interesting. So uh, let's get right into a deep dive into the book. Uh, what I find refreshing about it is that you see a lot of public probably autopsy books who just talk about the problem, whine about it, but you will have a specific proposal. Tell us what that proposal is in terms of the recolonization, if you may. Yes. Um, so at the end of the Civil War, three Southern states were majority Black. Uh, three others were within four percentage points of a majority Black. If Black people had not migrated, and I understand why they did, but if they had not migrated, uh, uh, it is possible that Black people could control up to 14 Senate seats or be the majority part of the coalition to do that. Uh, It is possible that they could uh, have controlled more electoral college votes than California and New York State combined. it is possible that they would have real power on a state level. And so what I am saying to Black America, particularly young Black Americans, I saw you in the streets. I have seen you protesting about this. I have seen, I've heard your wills. If you really want a shot at changing the systems that you are protesting against, one of the quickest, most powerful ways to do that is through, through state power. I'm asking that they consider a reverse migration, which a lot of people are already doing without thinking about political considerations. But I'm saying do it with political intentionality. Those of my generation remember uh, something in 1967, the Republic of New Africa. And Absolutely. I knew you have referenced it in your, in your book. Perhaps you should share with us what is similar to what was proposed back then and how does your proposal differ? Yes. So soon after the riots uh, in the late 1960s, uh, a group of radicals, I guess they called them, revolutionaries, <laughs> we might call them, uh, met uh, and they formed a provisional government of the Republic of New Africa. And what they were saying is pretty much this idea, which is uh, return south. But their de- list of demands was 
broader. Uh, they wanted to, re to establish a separate republic in the Southern states uh, and to demand reparations from America to basically help to finance that republic. My proposal differs in that I am not actually seeking secession. I, am, I don't want a separate republic. I want to be stronger within this republic. But one would have to ask, uh, part of the, my generation <laughs> was, we said to America, passage of the civil rights legislation, give us the political power, put us in charge of the cities, the courts, healthcare systems, and we will be better for our people than the people we're replacing. We've had 50 years of black political rule in the cities. Why do we have some of the disparities that we're, that we're talking about? Because there are no cities in the constitution. The, the Supreme Court has basically said and ruling out the ruling, not in, uh, in, in implicit ways, not ex explicit one necessarily, that cities exist at the leisure of the states. That's why you have preemption by states. There's nothing that a city can do that, a, that, a, that the, uh, the, the state government can't come in and preempt. We see that in the pandemic. We have all these liberal cities that want to have uh, to crack down on the pandemic in harder ways. And the, and the Republican government says, no, you can't do that. And they can't. There's nothing they can do. So it is great to have municipal control. There are 1,200 majority of black cities in America. 90% of them are in the South. It's actually... A, a good feeling to live in in, the, in 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 that kind of an environment. However, I understand that this is the United States of America, not the Federation of Cities of America. And that means that if you want real power, the half of the power that the Constitution gives not to the federal government, you have to be in charge of states. You have to have power in the state, on the state level. And so when people look at... Uh, cities that have struggled because they, it, it just so happens those are also majority black cities that ignores the whole idea that there was a massive white flight and massive white uh, disinvestment and they fled at the time that they still had all the money and still had all the resources so now that the city has an incredible infrastructure and not enough tax base to support it they look over the fact that these cities can't do any more than the states will allow them to do. The cities still depend on those states for resources, but they don't control those states. It is almost a shame to listen to people blame the cities for not doing better when in fact it was the pattern and behavior of white people when black people moved to those cities that hurt those cities in the first place. I see. But in your, in your book, you also are critical of my generation of leadership, as I have been. Uh, part of the reasons why I left the civil rights movement in the 60s is because many of the people who suffered and sacrificed most did not benefit from the change. Yes. When the doors of opportunity were open, it benefited those who were well-educated, but leaving behind the poor. And I think you make some of that same argument. Would you explain uh, your, your response to the elite? Sure. 
You know, I, I would say this, uh, no matter the color, no matter the community, the aristocracy is always looking out for the aristocracy. This, this whole idea of, you know, talented 10th is going to raise all boats. That's that's kind of a trickle down equality that doesn't work any more than trickle down economics works. The aristocracy will also always be foremost uh, invested in maintaining itself. Uh, and so you see that happen over and over and over again. What I'm saying here is uh, this, this movement doesn't depend on the aristocracy. This is literally a family by family decision. This is a person by person decision where the change will come from the bottom up. When you say the change will come from the bottom up, which is a very different approach, because particularly you mentioned that many white liberals uh, believe that their presence alone is enough of a catalyst to stimulate change. And uh, you are critical of some of the people who say they are our friends. Uh, would you speak to that? Yes. Uh, well, I'll say a couple of things. Number one, just because you are liberal on some issues does not mean that you are a racial egalitarian. Just because you believe in fighting climate change and you believe in a woman's right, a woman's right to choose and you may believe in gay marriage does not mean that you believe you think that all people, regardless of color, are uh, are equal. And we find that out over and over and over in very painful ways. Um, so that is part of the problem. So when you know, I lived in New York City at the height of stop and frisk, which was a incredibly racist, skewed system. Uh, where 90% of the people who were stopped at first were innocent. Most of those people were black and brown boys, some young men, but many of them boys. And whenever Quinnipiac would ask the white citizen, they would ask everybody, but they broke out by race, whether or not they agreed with this uh, policy, every single time, the majority of white people said they agreed with it. This is New York, one of the places we consider to be one of the most liberal places in America. In your, well, you said here that the elite class, either black or nor white, uh, liberate or otherwise, we will never offer a path to restu restitution or restoration for the black masses. Black healing and rebuilding must come from the bottom up and not the top down. Yes. Would you elaborate more on that? Because a lot of a lot of people are, uh, believe that it is the elites who, who deliver us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think Dr. King said it uh, about uh, in his letter from a Birmingham jail that the that the sometimes the, the that it's some of the people who are supposed to be our liberators are are not our friends. Yes. You know, the biggest stumbling block is a night, not the white citizens council or the KKK, but the white moderate that lukewarm acceptance from people of goodwill is more difficult to accept an outright rejection of people of ill will. Yes. You seem to be making that same point that King did. Yes, absolutely. And I think that you're asking a question that incorporates two groups of people. One is black aristocracy and the other is the white moderate, you know, uh, 
in any group, if you have a government, particularly a democratic government, you're going to have leaders, right? So there's always going to be a, a hierarchy there, but you're going to vote, you're going to elect somebody, they're going to run the government while you run your life and, and feed your family. Uh, that said, there are a lot of people who, ha who are now conditioned to having their power uh, be generated from their proximity to whiteness and white power. And that that group of people is invested in you not leaving, you not migrating, to you not finding a better future somewhere else because they are the Negro whisperer who they send to the ghetto or whatever they call the ghetto to say, tell them to go vote for this Congress, this, this councilman and tell them to go vote for this mayor. You know them very well. And don't you know so-and-so on that block? And don't you know the barbershop? And that's, that is how they derive their power. There will always be opposition from that class of people to, in, to, the, to, pe to the people on the bottom, the working class people doing for themselves what they have been knighted to do. The other issue you bring up there is the white liberal. Those are the people, the white moderate, right? Those are the people who say, I, I, I agree with you in, in general, but now is not the right time. We have bigger fish fry. There will always be a bigger fish to fry than tackling white supremacy and searching for black equality. Always, always. You know, the reason that reconstruction failed is because there was a contested election and the compromise, there's always a compromise that leaves us in the cold. The compromise was to withdraw federal troops from the South so, and that would let the liberals have the presidency. Well, we know what, we, everybody knew what was gonna happen. And that's exactly what happened. Terror reigned and you got uh, everybody calling uh, state after state after state in the South call the Constitutional Convention to literally write white supremacy into the DNA of those states. And in fact, you know, I go back and went back and read those minutes. They're not shy about it. This is not some artful language. They're literally saying, I'm here to write white supremacy into the law. And you also <clears throat> talk about the role of partisan politics. Uh, you acknowledge that President Trump as despised as he <clears throat> has been among, the, he attracted the largest percentage of black votes in the last 40 years. And a significant number of uh, Hispanic votes, I think by 30%. Yes. And gays as well. Yes. And, and, and so it, it seems to me that people made strategic decisions and maybe not racial ones. Do you see it that way? Or, or what do you see the role of partisan power? We are so wedded to uh, partisan uh, par a political party. Is that helpful to what you're proposing? Well, I make very clear in the book that when I say black power, it doesn't necessarily mean party power. So it doesn't mean Democratic Party mm -hmm. power or any other party power. It does mean uh, that I believe in black self-determination my own politics are liberal, right? I believe that with more prosperity for black people, you'll get more liberalism among black people. Uh, but because they are, there's so much oppression in the black community, you have to lean on something bigger than yourself. We, we have, that's part of the reason we have a, a, a higher levels of religiosity, I believe. It's because you have to, I have to believe in something. This thing is crushing me. I see no path for my, me or my family out of it. I have to hand this over to somebody. 
right? So that that makes sense to me. Generally speaking, though, right now, Blacks are very, on social issues, very conservative. The reason that Black people cannot support the Republican Party is that they have openly courted and abided the racists. So it's just a no from the beginning. You can't even have the conversation because it's a no. That is, I think, slightly different than what we saw in the election results. In the first election, almost a third of Hispanics and Asians voted for Donald Trump. That was after he said the Mexicans were rapists and, 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 uh, and killers, after the Muslim ban, after all that he had done. He amped that up. He separated the kids from their uh, parents. And, and the list goes on and on and on. And his biggest in increases were in these immigrant communities. That says to me a number of things. Number one, not all minorities in this country are going to be allied on the racial question. It also reveals something that we don't talk a lot about, which is that anti-Blackness is a global phenomenon. A lot of people who immigrate to America bring that anti-Blackness from the place they come from. There is a reason that in Brazil, I think they, they asked people to you know, put their race, they, they came up with like, I think 134 different variations of Black. Because as Skip Gay says, nobody wanted to be black, black. Anti-blackness is unfortunately pervasive. It exists in some parts of the Caribbean, it exists in some parts of South America, it exists in some parts of Asia, it exists in Europe, everywhere. So the idea that the browning of America will somehow be the savior for black people is not necessarily uh, well, a well-grounded philosophy in which one should put their hopes. To make your point, uh, Pele, who was Brazil's and the world's famous soccer player, Brazil, had to be an official white person in order to get a passport to travel. <laughs> mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's your point. Mm -hmm. But you also, in the book, talk about the role of rage that everybody seems to, to galvanize in protests. And, and you, 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 you discuss rage. So explain what you, what you, how you characterize the importance, or, or is it a distraction? I don't think it's a distraction. Uh, I think, you know, um... It is a natural response to this sort of oppression. It's that it only has it has a limited utility when it comes to the acquisition and maintenance of political power. Rage can change the conversation. It can change the narrative. It can direct attention. But as in the same way that the attention can get directed, it can get redirected in the next week or the next month. If you want to have real change in policy, a real shift in power that is rooted in policy, that is rooted in legislation, that is rooted in constitutions, both state and federal, 
That is where you must make the change for lasting uh, conversion of, of policy. But in, in, the, uh, in your book, you talk a lot in terms of figures from the past. Uh, and the question for you is, are there lessons from the past that can be helpful in our presence? And what we achieved in the face of oppression and Jim Crow, in my era, for instance, I grew up in a blue collar neighborhood and uh, I differ a little in some of your assessment because in my experience in Philadelphia, uh, low income blacks and middle class and did not live together. They, we, we, were, we were separate. There were different enclaves. Uh, there were no professionals, no doctors, no lawyers living in our blue collar neighborhood. They lived in Germantown or Yaden and other places. And so there's this, this notion that somehow with uh, desegregation, that the middle class moved out, leaving behind uh, only the poor. And I was wondering if you could, uh, what has your, been your experience in, as you well, look at One of the uh, fascinating interviews I had for the book was with Timisul Black, uh, who is in Chicago, I think 101 now. Um, and he was part of the first wave of the mig Great Migration when he was very young. Uh, and he reflects on this idea as well that, you know, uh, that desegregation of housing in that in Chicago happened so quickly that it was detrimental, that if it were slower, maybe it would have been a little bit better. But he describes a phenomenon where in the very beginning, Black people had no choice but to be together. So the professionals were with the rest of the of uh, the black community and that everyone benefited from that idea. That, that the blacks who were better off had an incentive to help other people be better off because they were their neighbors. You couldn't have a better community unless you made life better for everybody else. And people who were not as well off benefited from seeing up close and personal these uh, models of behavior and success. And that when Black people were allowed to fan out, they did so as quickly as they could. And the people who were kind of left without options were also left in a more concentrated state of poverty. That exists in a lot of cities, in, uh, particularly in the cities that people migrated to. There were communities that were basically uh, roped off as black. That's where you were supposed to be. And because that became the legacy of the community, they have never truly been fully serviced and restored. And people think about success as not as building that area up, but moving out of that area. Do you see any tension between the emphasis on race and economic development? I've uh, always thought the two are tied in, in, in America. Uh, and in fact, uh, the white upper class historically has used the white lower class as its weapon to maintain itself. Like to, the, the agitation 
or allowing or promoting even agitation with other poor people and creating that division was helpful to them. So I don't see how race and class are separate things. I, people always want to say, you know, that one is the bigger issue than the other. I think they're cousins linked at the hip. Well, again, in my, in, in my generation, I remember, as I said, leading demonstrations outside of a pharmaceutical company in Barrett Rustin's town of Westchester <clears throat> for three months. And when they desegregated, they'd hired nine black PhD chemists. And we asked them to join our movement. They said they got these because they were qualified <laughs> and not because of the struggles. That happened several times. <clears throat> And, I, and that's when I came to the realization that many of the people who have suffered most are been, did not benefit from the change. And that a lot of times the demographics of those who are struggling are used to promote remedies that don't help them. And I was wondering uh, if you experienced that in your, uh, in your research and, and looking at why communities uh, on your, and your strategies are building, rebuilding communities. I'm not sure I understand that question. I mean that uh, when sometimes you were talking about the elites, both yes. black and white, I th sometimes believe that even elite blacks propose remedies that benefit them, but not necessarily low income blacks. Yes. Well, well listen, I will say this. Um, you will always, because he, these are human beings, regardless of race, you'll always have that strain. You're always going to have uh, uh, the have to deal with the issue of income distribution and income inequality. You're always going to have to deal with the rub between the working class and the elite class. What I'm saying, though, is you don't always have to deal with white supremacy being an extra layer on top of all of that. I am not proposing a utopian society that solves all your problems. <laughs> I am proposing a, a society that where white supremacy is not the prevailing ethos, where I can have the same set of problems that the white people have with income inequality and then try to work those out without having to worry about whether or not it feels like the police are stalking my children. Without have to worry about mass incarceration in, in, uh, in uh, disproportionately affecting black people. Without having to worry about health policies that disproportionately affect black people. I want to have the regular worries that white people have about income inequality that are divorced <laughs> from white supremacy. So, so in your book, you also, uh, in looking back, uh, talk about uh, Booker T. Washington. And, and back in, in my day, of course, my generation, and I think many of us betrayed your generation. I think we spent so much time trying to give you the things that we we didn't have, we didn't give you the things that we did have. <laughs> and what we did have back then is aggressive debate within our community as to the way forward. Yes. There was King, there was Malcolm X, there was a Panthers, there was a Republic of New Africa, SNCC. There was just tension, but the tension was always around agency. Yes. What we were going to do to promote our advancement and it seems to me that you are suggesting the same thing in your book, that these are the kinds of issues that you're staring the pot with it uh, 
and you mentioned Booker T. Washington and the Rosenwald schools yes. and your reverence for him. Uh, not many people who propose what you do have a reverence for, for him. Right. And I was wondering if you talk about that. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I uh, want to make very clear is throughout American history, Black people have struggled with how best to help the Black race. Our leaders have struggled with this. And there have been people who absolutely loved Black people, wanted the best for Black people who made horrible miscalculations. I don't believe for a second that Booker T. Washington didn't love Black people with every fiber of his body and wanted the best for them. He just made a horrible miscalculation. And, and I think we keep making it, which is that we think that white supremacy can be negotiated with. We think that if we just do better, they will see us as whole. They will see us as equal. They will see us as deserving. That we can earn our way into equality rather than being born into equality. His horrible miscalculation was that he believed that you could earn your way into it. And he was willing to take a second seat while we got ourselves together and tried to earn our way into it. Now, listen, Booker, Booker T. Washington existed. He was born into slavery, existed during Reconstruction, right after uh, the slaves were freed. It is estimated that a quarter of all Black people in America, right after the end of slavery, got sick or died, seriously sick or died. People, he was describing in his book, people would come to school, they had never used a toothbrush, they never slept in a bed, they had only slept on the floor. People were starving and sick. His mother, his own mother died during this period. There's a part of me that says, I don't even know what it looks, it's, it's easy for me to look back and say, okay, he was horrible, he made this horrible miscalculation that I, I, I can't have nothing to do with him. It's a whole other thing to have been born like that and live like that the first years of your life and to live through a catastrophe for black people where they're literally starving and sick and the, whatever little medical infrastructure that did exist collapsed around them. And so he makes a calculation to say, let's just get us jobs so that we can sustain ourselves and eat and get on our feet. But to do that, you gave up the power, the only power that we had, which was we had incredible numbers in the South. So I am disappointed in the, the, uh, the eventual repercussions of what he did, but I fully know that I am looking back retrospectively from a very comfortable seat here in Atlanta talking to you. <laughs> yeah. But what he... Uh, when you when you say that, uh, what do you think he should have done? I know what he did do, of course, in cooperation with Julius Rosenwald, build 5,000 Rosenwald schools throughout the South. Listen, uh, th 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 that's the whole point. There are things yeah. that uh, Washington did that were incredibly helpful. The one thing that he did that was harmful was he basically gave white people permission, moral permission, to say that you are second-class citizen not deserving of mm -hmm. full participation in the civic activities of your government. He gave that permission. 
But on the ground, of course, this man is working his whole life to try to better the conditions of black people. Yeah. Yeah, and in the whole issue, you have a, 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 a strong statement about self-determination. Uh, even back in, in then, uh, self-determination, that with those 5,000 Rosenwald schools, the education gap between blacks and whites in the South between 1920 and 1940 closed from eighth grade, I think three years down to two and a half and 20 years. That yet because of the Rosenwald schools, uh, it seems to me that was an incredible accomplishment under conditions of segregation. The question is, why are we not able to accomplish some of that in the presence of the kind of control we do have at our, over our systems today? You know, it's, a, it's well, first let me start about the Rosenwald schools. Some of these kids were going to school in, uh, in, in buildings with dirt floors if they were going to school yeah. at all. Okay. I mean, it, it's, uh, a part of it was just basic shelter. And part mm -hmm. of the buildings with the Rosenwald schools was also shelter for teachers. These teachers weren't making any money. And this was mm -hmm. the way for them. So uh, that was happening. Uh, but that was moving from a, a, a state of absolute destitution to some uh, normal normalcy and just basic humanity for these children. Mm -hmm. The step now is how is it that we were ever in this position of being looked upon as inferior in the first place as other equal human beings? And why is it taking 400 years and we still not to the position of erasing this thing that should never have been done in the first place. And why is it that I need, I should have to pat you on the back for whatever you call progress for undoing something that should never have been done and you still haven't finished undoing it. Yeah. To me, that is the problem. I see. <clears throat> you have a, a, a quote that I, I found intriguing. I'd like for you to I'll talk about, uh, I think it's on page 117, it is active in the whole issue of activism and going back to how do we promote change? How do we build on what we've, the Rosenwald, the energy, the whatnot? And you said here, the activism becomes an exercise in credentialing, a way of positioning in pursuit of power. And then you say turning black struggle into an, order, uh, 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 an anthology and black pain into pedagogy. Just what did you mean by that? I found that an intriguing. Uh... Well, it, 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 it means that, you know, there's a class of people within the black elite uh, who are basically making an industry out of explaining black pain to white people. Oh. Uh, and maybe it shifts something, but that is not, to me, it seems the aim of it, the aim of it is to uh, get in the good graces of the white academy, to, to, to be part of the canon, to, to, be, to get, gain your laurels as the whisperer of the black people. And I guess there's some art to that. And there is also, there's definitely some fortune involved in that. But to me, that has never been uh, 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 truly about getting equality for black people. That is about 
uh, mining the market of white guilt. Isn't that destructive to the ends of black self-determination? To me it is. If people are, are profiting off of uh, peddling pathology or saying to people repeatedly that you can't make it, these are the barriers, uh, or what not, you? Maybe, maybe that, maybe, but, or maybe it's, you know, that, that's part of it, but part of it is just the constant strain to make poetry of the pain. Like, I, I don't, the reason I never wanted to write a race book is that I don't want to do this. I don't want to find a more artful way to say this is really problematic. Wow. I don't want to find a more artful way to say it hurts to see another black man gunned down in the street. I don't want the white guilt industry to say, oh my God, did you read the way he described it? I want a solution. I have three children in this world, all young adults. The idea that I could leave this life and they are fighting the same battle that I'm fighting is a problem for me. I want a solution. Well, I, uh, I applaud you because I'm, uh, how is your, are your views being received by uh, some of your colleagues who are oriented towards race? There's well, the some, book people, has, some well, people get up every day and talking about race, race, and white guilt is their, that's their forte. They well, know we'll how to mind what, we'll, white guilt. We'll see once they read the book. <laughs> <laughs> but I, 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 I applaud that because that's, uh, as a conservative uh, oriented, uh, I, I too believe that we must be seeking common ground on solutions, that we don't have time to blame. And the message that is going to our young people is, 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 is defeat. Defeatism clothed in militant opposition to whites. And so I'm just delighted to read in your book uh, that you didn't want to be a race man but solutions. Why do you think it's so difficult to even get a discussion around solutions? Why are there so few people uh, even mentioning the word solutions? Well, I think that there are people hard pressed to find them. Uh, there's, there are solutions to, there are smaller solutions to provincial problems. So there are people, there are solutions on a local level, ban chokeholds to keep people from being choked to death on the street. Uh, uh, institute uh, 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 laws that make officers intervene if they feel like their fellow officer is going too far. Those are provincial solutions. Grand solutions are harder for people to come by. And that's what I was in search of. I need a grand solution where we can start to address all of this because if we just peck around the edges, we'll be pecking until the chickens die. Well, my hope is that your book will excite a kind of discussion of solutions because it is, it is really needed, particularly around the issue of, of the, the, the role of race and the role of rage. Thank you. Because people are using it as a substitute for solutions and substance. 
Thank you. And and there are our people, our people are desperate for the kind of thinking that you have uh, uh, laid out in, in your in your book. But uh, when you do discuss these uh, ideas in the academy, what has been their your your response when you when you? Well, I, I, I haven't had, I haven't yet had a chance to discuss in the academy. You know, the, <laughs> I'm sure the this isn't the new. first time, though. The book is new. <laughs> I'm sure it's not the first time that you've espoused these things. Well, in this context, yes, it is actually. I mean, it's uh, uh, you'll you'll appreciate this. The post was very uh, interested in me not saying anything about this until the book came out. So, uh, oh, is that right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I think it's, it's really offering a, a, a unique perspective because there, there really is a, uh, a, a mixed message going out and uh, that race is the only thing we need to be uh, uh, paying attention to and talking about uh, a regional. Are, are you concerned that if this migration took place that only a certain class of people would be able to, to move and what would it do for the people left behind? Or, uh, I think that's that's something you should consider. However, I would also look at um, you know one of the best examples of this ever working was in Vermont. Uh, it, early 1970s, two young law students at Yale wrote a paper in the Yale Law Review. I think it was called Jamestown 70, uh, where they argued, you know, all this Vietnam protesting, all this radicalism. You not want to have a revolution the way you think you are. What you can do is what they call radical federalism: take over a state. Vermont was the smallest one. Move to Vermont. Uh, author picks this up and writes an article based on it in Playboy magazine of all places, saying, "Take over Vermont." Young white hippies move by the tens of thousands to Vermont. They sleep in the fields. They sleep in communes. They do whatever, and they change. Vermont from one of the most conservative states in the union to now is one of the most liberal states in America. They didn't do it because they had a six-figure job waiting. They did it because they believed in the possibility of change. These weren't the wealthy people who were doing who were doing the moving. These were the hippies who had nothing. What I'm saying is there is actually real economic possibilities for black people in the South. Some of the places where black middle class is doing best in America is in the South. Some of the wealthiest black neighborhoods in uh, Maryland around DC are in the South. I'm saying everybody who believes in this possibility should take their opportunity to, to pursue it or at least deeply consider it. And not everybody's going to migrate. Not everybody migrated during the Great Migration. The, va the majority of Black people stayed in the South. Not every white person migrated during, during the, the, the Dust Bowl. Not every white person migrated during the Gold Rush. Everybody doesn't migrate in any migrational movement. Just those who are most inclined. And those are the people who I'm appealing to. Right. Also, uh, on that whole, in that whole thing, your own uh, personal journey. Uh, on, I was looking at page 145, and you talked about going to college and uh, the importance of uh, attending Grambling State. 
uh, would, you, would you talk to uh, a bit about your own personal experience? Uh, you wanted to be a witness to what you believe. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the thing about my life is that I have always existed, well, for the most part, in majority Black spaces. I was born in Shreveport, which is majority Black. I grew up in Gibson, Louisiana, majority Black town. I went to Grambling State University, HB, a historically Black college in a majority Black town. When my first job out of college was in Detroit, Michigan, a majority Black city. When I moved to uh, New York, I didn't move to a majority Black city, but I moved to a majority Black neighborhood, which is Prospect Heights, which is Shirley Chisholm's old district. And now I've moved back to Atlanta, which is a majority Black city. I understand what that feels like to live in an environment where you are honored and nurtured, where people believe in you and the, it doesn't feel like the, the, the power structure is hunting you or that it hates you. And I want that feeling for everybody. But you also talked about uh, the importance of altruism, the part of giving back. Yes. Uh, many of the scholars on the left who are black, who talk about uh, these issues are doing some from a different perch. They're not talking about it from Grambling or Cheney State where I went. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and I thank God for that experience because I had some professors who took this school dropout who hadn't read a book until I was 20 years old and, and, and then sold into me the importance of learning. He could have been teaching at Harvard, but he was teaching at Cheney. Yes. And it's what you talk about in, when you talk about, it's a beautiful passage about uh, uh, deciding to attend Grambling State and the importance of to, to define yourself, not by the celebrity that you can derive from your sacrifice, but the altruism that it gives you a chance to express. Yes. Uh, I found that uh, most eloquent uh, you. when you were talking about uh, what it means to you personally. And I think few people spend as much time uh, witnessing of their beliefs rather than just writing about them. And that's also what I found intriguing uh, uh, about the book. Thank uh, you. Where, where, what is your first step after its publication? Who do you think uh, would gravitate to this? Uh, what, what, are you, what are your hopes that you will, this will accomplish? My, my hope is that it sparks conversation around this as a real thing. You know, uh, some of the early reviews said, oh, it's, uh, it's a great thought experiment. And I, and I kept thinking, no, it's not. <laughs> this is, I'm serious. Uh, and I want people to genuinely think about it because uh, I don't know when else it would be possible, number one. In a few decades, in a couple of decades, you'll see more balkanization in America. Several of the Southwestern states will be not majority, minority, majority Hispanic. They will be able to send congressional delegations to Congress and they should if they want, that's their prerogative. Uh, there will be more Asian people in America than black people. The 
Washington, Oregon, down into the Rockies will remain, will remain and the Plain states will remain majority white. But on the East Coast, you'll have some mix of maybe majority minorities, but most likely white plurality. No state in the union is expected to be majority black by that point. Now, uh, and, and Hawaii obviously has always been uh, majority Asian Pacific Islander, South Pacific Islander, and will continue to be. Do we want part of this state power pie or not? If we don't, that's fine. You know, I, you know, I, I, I say, but what I want to put before people is either you're going to have power or you're not, and it's going to make make require a decision on your part and may require some sacrifice on your part. Revolutionary acts are never simple. They're never without, they're never not fraught. They're never without uh, uh, the possibility of disaster even. But you, you're either going to make, a, uh, uh, take a revolutionary step or you're not. But I don't want you to not do it, not knowing that it was a possibility, that there was a path and you just didn't take it. Dr. King said that the highest form of maturity is the ability to be self-critical. <laughs> and in your, uh, in your book, you talk about uh, the need for uh, sort of a, a, a change in leadership, particularly the Congressional Black Caucus. Many of, people, many of them are my age. And there is a need to regenerate, to refurbish. I happen to agree with you. <laughs> uh, what, how do you think that should occur? I mean, I just make the point that if you look at the white membership of Congress and the black uh, uh, caucus delegation, the black caucus is appreciably older than the white members of Congress. And I do believe that there is so much young energy that some of that should become part of our leadership delegations. We should have more of an infusion of the young thought and young energy and young legs to get involved in that and not uh, you know, have this kind of elder worship mentality around black leadership that the people who came of age in the 60s and 70s are the people who should lead us into the 2000s and the 2030s, 2020s, 2030s. That is not what I believe. I look at these young, the, pretty much every major city in the South now has a black mayor. Not all of them, but close. Many of them are these young, dynamic people. We just had this young man in Baltimore. Young, dynamic, energetic, new thoughts. We need that not just on the municipal level, we need that on the state level, we need that in the federal government. There was a, when I was uh, some years ago, had a discussion with um, Mayor Jackson and some of the black mayors, and I asked some of these same questions. And, and, and I asked them, for instance, Maynard, you're from Atlanta, you can appreciate this. Well, I just moved to Atlanta. I'm not from Atlanta. <laughs> uh, I mean, that, that you know Atlanta. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when the time, a uh, decision was made about the redevelopment of the downtown area. I asked Maynard, why were Peachtree Street selected and not Auburn Avenue? 
Auburn Avenue, of course, is where the traditional Black Wall Street was. Mm-hmm. And Peachtree Street is downtown where white businesses are. And I asked Maynard at that time, why did you select the redevelopment of Peachtree Street as opposed to Auburn Avenue? What was his answer? Now I'm intrigued. He just stumbled. Uh, uh, and, and he didn't want to say why. What do you think the reason was? Because he and his friends, the black elite that you talk about, benefited economically from that choice. And that's why it happened city after city. And that's why I'm, uh, I agree with your point that that leadership chose personal celebrity, personal gain at the expense of their own people. And that's the dilemma that we face. And, uh, and you make that point uh, in your, in your uh, personal testimony that we need leadership that's, that chooses what's best for the majority of people or what's best for the least of these. Yes, yes. And not what's best for my career. Yes. And so that's what I found most intriguing about your book, the emphasis on character as opposed to political power. Thank you. And I just want to know if I got that right. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's good. But uh, in, in, in the minutes that are left, yes. um, what, are, what are some of the things you want people to remember most uh, about your book? If you could just outline, what is it that you want us to, to um, <clears throat> And let's take to your book when we're when we're reading it. Yes, I want to, uh, people to remember that racism in America is everywhere, and that this idea that it's all in the South and less in the North and all uh, that that's a lot of that's myth making. Uh, and so when you understand that, you can then make decisions that are not dependent on that mythology. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two that there is a thriving black middle class in the South. And in addition to that, there's a lot, tremendous amount of black leadership, particularly on the municipal level in the South. So you can have a different sort of sensibility around how your government, your local government is run and who they're responsive to. Uh, the third thing uh, that's, that's important to me uh, is that I believe that there are, you know, generally speaking, two Black Americas. This is not, of course, including uh, our brothers from new immigrants from Africa or the Caribbean. But generally speaking, there are the sons and daughters of the Great Migration and the sons and daughters of the people who stayed in the South. And that those are, there are cultural differences that have developed between, that are different for those people. And that I believe that those cultures, that, that, in reunion of those cultures lies an amazing possibility for black culture overall that brings some of that uh, artistic, intellectual uh, dynamism, organizing, protesting, in the street, rage field, whatever, bring that back and join it to this idea of legacy and rootedness uh, and and family and structure that the South has in its black community, 
somewhere in the, between those two things or the, within the amalgamation of those two things is magic. In other words, what you, I hear you saying is that people are motivated to change and improve when they are inspired by victories that are possible. Yes. And not always reminding them of injuries to be avoided. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and in your book, you, you clearly do lay out some benchmarks, some things for us to strive for. Uh, again, I may disagree on some of the details, but I'm inspired with the idea that there is a big idea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because it, it then challenges, if people disagree with you, they ought to disagree with you by offering their solution. Yes. And not just offering a counter argument. Yes. That's my advice as an elder to a young person. All right. <laughs> Don't let people get away. I didn't think with... I was so young, though, but okay, I'll take it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you are. <laughs> you are. <clears throat> Trust me on that one. And, and it's refreshing, though, to uh, read your book and to meet you and to uh, be inspired by a person in your generation who really is seeking remedies and you see value in our past, and, and you see a, 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 a future filled with promise. Thank but, you so much. But in our destiny is, is in it with our own hands. As Dr. King said that the enemy, the victimizer may have knocked you down, but the victim has to get up. And I see what you have written here, a a policy and a, and a solution for getting up. I applaud you. Thank you. And I recommend everybody go out and buy this book. Thank you so much. And it's just good spending the time with you. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you got your podcasts. Send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org.